Well, I, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to go out and pile up all this, the sofa cushions on the sofa and make a fort and hide. I think that's a brilliant idea. Brilliant idea. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by airplane bathrooms. I have nothing else to say on the topic. I just want you all to know that I find airplane bathrooms really confusing. So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am joined once again by Dr. Christopher Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hello, hello. And I am also joined again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health. Welcome, Jess. Hi, thank you. And as a reminder, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. You're going to love it. And you can also head on over to your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is the kids are using, and you can give us a a rating that'll help other people find us, and we would be greatly appreciative. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to get into a study on the relationship between stroke and heart attacks and covid did I get that right, Chris? You, you yeah. had to look like I got that wrong. No, no, no. no. Okay. I think, that, that thing, I think that's what the paper was about. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about the impact of um, the mild influenza season that came along with COVID and what the implications of that mild COVID season are. And in fact, that is not what we're going to talk about. What are we going to talk about? Influenza. Apparently. But I uh, seem to have come over the impression that we're talking about lottery vaccines, lotteries for okay, COVID so vaccines. I have, the, I have the mild influenza season, so too. So here's what we'll do. <laughs> Jess and I will talk about the mild influenza season. And then when I turn to you, Chris, you tell us about lotteries for COVID vaccines. Okay. All right. <laughs> do they work? No. All right. <laughs> but maybe they will for influenza vaccines. <laughs> I don't think they will either. <laughs> well, let's just move on then and jump into segment one, where we're going to to talk about an article on the relationship between stroke and heart attacks and COVID published in The Lancet. It was entitled Risk of Acute Myocardial Infarction and Ischemic Stroke Following COVID-19 in Sweden, a Self-Controlled Case Series and Matched Cohort Study. Two by first for one. Co- a two for, yeah. two for one. First author, Ionis Katsalaris from the Department of Public Health and Clinical Medicine at Umea University in Umea, Sweden. Some headlines on this one, increased risk of heart attack stroke in first two weeks following COVID, Lancet study, Times of India says. Uh, Business Today says higher risk of heart attack and stroke in the first two weeks after COVID-19, study says. That one makes a bit more sense to me. And Yahoo News says heart stroke risk climbs after COVID-19. Flu shots may be protective. I don't think that's the study uh, says anything about flu shots. That's why I clipped this one. I didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't. They didn't read the paper. Didn't really get where the, the maybe, second part of that one came maybe from. They, but maybe it was in one of the long supplements. Oh, maybe. <laughs> going deep and they're going to yeah. tell you about Ohio vaccine lotteries. Maybe. Maybe that's exactly it. Okay. Well, Jess, you want to you wanna walk us through this study? Sure. So... So this is an interesting paper, and as we were talking about just a few minutes ago, this is a meaty paper. There is a lot in here, a lot to talk about. Or, or so, a tofu-y. Or a tofu um, vegetarian m- melange of a, of a paper. <laughs> so the key research question, as Matt was saying here, is whether COVID infection increases the risk of a new heart attack, a new MI, or stroke in the period immediately following COVID infection. And so the authors looked at this question in the context of the healthcare patient uh, data registry in Sweden, which is one of the most amazing things about Sweden for those of us who look for population health data. It's awesome. So the data registry in Sweden effectively includes the entire population. And so they had the entire population of this country in this database. And they were looking at the research questions in the context of this database. Um, the study ran from February 1st to September, early September 2020. So covering the early like six, seven months of the pandemic. And what the authors did, which was very interesting, they used two parallel study designs 
looking at the same question in different ways. And so the first study question they looked at was, a, was called a self-controlled case series, and the second was a matched cohort. So I'll talk about these two designs a little bit in brief, and they basically, as another spoiler at the end, they kind of come to largely the same conclusion, which is nice and kind of affects the, you know, the impression of quality and validity of this study. So the self-controlled case series is a design where individuals with both established COVID infection or diagnosed COVID infection and one of the study outcomes of interest, so either MI or stroke. So they took the subset of participants who both had COVID and one of these outcomes, and they looked at the incidence race of that particular outcome within the same individual across different time periods before and after the COVID diagnosis. So it's a study where they are the one case one individual is serving as a control for themselves across different time periods while they are in the context of this database. They looked at six different periods of time, including the month before the diagnosed COVID infection within the database. They looked at the immediate period of time before infection, one to three days before the infection. And then they looked at three time periods post-COVID infection, the first week, the second week, and then day 15 to day 28, so kind of the remaining two weeks of the month, and all of the other time periods were consolidated into a control period. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things that they noticed as they were doing this self-controlled case series analysis is that there were a lot of events, so a lot of MI or stroke, occurring on what they were designating as day zero, so it was concurrent with the COVID diagnosis. And because of this, they were, and so their, their assumption there was that people were getting diagnosed with COVID when they came into the hospital for one of these events, not that COVID was causing one of these events. And so they ran their analysis both including and excluding the cases that occurred on this day zero. And so that led a to somewhat a complicated nature of the analysis as you're looking through their different tables, but it does make sense and it's good that they did that. They also look at, looked at effect modification by age, under and over 70, and by sex. They also used as their second study design a more traditional matched cohort approach in where uh, cases who were, were people diagnosed with COVID during the study period were matched on age, sex, and county within Sweden of residents with four controls. So they were matched four to one controls to cases, and they used a conditional logistic regression approach, adjusting for various things in comorbidities. Their overall study included 86,000 patients with COVID and 300 and almost 349,000 controls in their database. In the case series, Analysis, they had 186 participants in the heart attack case series and 254 in the stroke case series, 11,000 people or so in the heart attack cohort study and about the same in the stroke cohort study. Okay, so as we move on from study design to talk about the results of this study, they found in short elevated risks of both heart attack and strokes in the weeks following COVID infection. If we focus on just the model that excludes the day zero diagnoses, because that probably makes sense to do, the risk of stroke was nearly three times higher in the first week after COVID and likewise in the second week following the COVID diagnosis compared to the control period. So this was in the case series form of the analysis. And there was a small decline in risk after 15 days to about two times the risk of stroke in that second half of the month following COVID diagnosis. For heart attacks, a similar pattern, they observed a similar pattern. So in the period of time after COVID infection, the first week is associated with the highest increased risk of heart attack. It was nearly a three times increase the risk of heart attack. And by the second week, it was 2.5 times the risk compared to the control period. This is in the self-controlled case series design. The risk drops somewhat to 1.6 times the risk in the control period by week three. In the cohort component of the study, they had similar findings. They observed three times the risk of heart attack in participants with COVID compared to those without COVID and a multivariable regression model with some evidence, and we could discuss potentially that lower income, greater number of pre-existing comorbidities and being born in a middle-income country were associated with elevated risk of heart attack. And for stroke, COVID was associated with a 3.6 increase in stroke after COVID, again, with evidence that comorbidities, certain comorbidities, less education, and being born outside of Sweden 
were associated with increased risk. So across these multiple study designs and multiple outcomes, basically this very rich health database in Sweden, this in, in the context of that study, they're coming to this conclusion that COVID is fairly dramatically increasing risk of first-time heart attack and first-time stroke in the month after infection with elevated risk in the first week and also in the second week for both of these outcomes. So a complex study design, but the outcomes are consistent across the multiple designs and actually largely consistent between heart attack and stroke, mm -hmm. which is also interesting. So it's a, it, I think you hit on a key point, which is this is a, this is a pretty complicated analysis. And they used two different study designs, which required them to explain both study designs. They had two different outcomes, which meant in the results, they had to explain two different sets of results. So there's a lot of moving parts here for you know what is a fairly small space to be able to describe all this. And I think as much as I generally liked the, the, design, the different design features, I also felt like I didn't necessarily get a chance to truly digest all of it because you know, there wasn't, at least in the main paper, as much detail as I would have liked on each of them. But that having said that, the, the two different designs come with two different sets of assumptions. You know, one comes with a set of assumptions around being able to remove all the confounding. The other, in theory, inherently controls for the confounding, at least the time invariant confounding. That's the self-control design because you're using one person as their own comparison. But it requires uh, some, some fairly strong assumptions around the outcome or the ex the outcome not affecting the exposure at later time points. So it, there, there's a lot of, of moving parts here. And it's, it's nice that they both came to the same conclusions. But I think we have to think carefully about whether or not we buy the different assumptions. So Chris, what, what was your take on this study? Well, my, my, my first takeaway, maybe the most important takeaway, is that this was a very long paper, and I think that The Lancet only uses the, the, the 2,700 word limit for my papers. Oh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, they have... This was a really long paper. They right? really, yeah. like, I feel like their discussion is right. longer than most of my papers. They, they have uh, the, the Gill rule. That, that, I think that they the selectively employ yes. that. The Gill um, doctrine, which says we only enforce the rules on Dr. Gill. I, I thought the most interesting note, part of note, this Notice how Chris slipped in there that he's got Lancet papers. Uh, I have one, <laughs> but it looks like we might have a second one coming up. So we're 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 eternally optimistic here. I uh, I thought the most interesting part of this, or maybe the most interesting sort of methodological challenge in this, is that they didn't really know. They acknowledge this. They didn't know when people got infected with COVID nineteen. Right. Right. So, and, and that's not surprising because you, you, you really can't know. What you might know is when they became symptomatic with COVID 19, which is probably four or five days afterwards. But perhaps the risk of MI precedes the onset of symptoms. And in fact, if that's true, it would kind of explain some of their sort of like curious data, like in their, in their table one, where they look at the, 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 the incident rate ratio for a heart attack. And in fact, it's much the same for their stroke results, that if, if you do the inclusion of the zero events rates, that the, the peak incidence is actually day zero. The, 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 okay. in the pre-exposure period of day minus three to zero, the incident rate ratio was 16 for a heart right. attack. Yeah. So just to, just to clarify this. So what you're saying is in this analysis, they excluded heart attacks and strokes on the day that people were, were diagnosed, diagnosed because they're concerned that it's a reverse causation thing, that that's right. the yeah. stroke is leading you to be diagnosed. But you're saying it's possible that some of that is true, but it's also possible that some of it is real strokes that are happening before the symptoms occur, but are still are caused still by COVID. To COVID-19, exactly. Right. In fact, that would, that would totally make sense. I mean, I, I'm surprised to see that the effect was so, was so high. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, that, that might explain why it seems paradoxically that the stroke risk precedes the, uh, the diagnosis of COVID, because we don't actually know when COVID was diagnosed relative to the, the stroke, right. because it was probably a week before so, the stroke. So, so can I ask a question about this? Because the, 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 the hypothesis that they have about the day zero is that they're excluding COVID events that are diagnosed on the day of the heart attack because the hypothesis is you have the heart attack and then you go to the hospital and because everyone was so paranoid about COVID at that point, you're testing everyone until you find people. And, and that's fine. I mean, that makes sense to me as a, as a general strategy. On the other hand, why would, if, if there's no causal relationship, why would people who have heart attacks be more likely to have COVID that is not causing them to get tested on uh, just because of COVID 
different from anybody else. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So I mean, I mean, maybe there is, and, and maybe there's something to it. But it just it struck me as a, a pretty a pretty strong assumption mm-hmm. to, to to remove them all for partly, I guess, for the reasons you're saying, and partly because I, I just don't know what it means. So I think we have to look at these data, you know, maybe in a in a from a from a bigger perspective, mm-hmm. which is let's not get too hung up with when the, the, the heart attack or the stroke occurred relative to the diagnosis of COVID-19, because that is misleading, because we don't know when COVID-19 disease, the infection actually occurred. And so we're, we're making a big assumption and getting hung up on this day zero, day minus one thing, when in fact, the bigger picture is that in the immediate proximity to COVID-19, the heart attack stroke risk goes through the roof. Right. And remains high for about a month after after the event as well. But the initial risk is probably much closer to the timing of the onset of infection. And that, that to me, seems like a really important takeaway from this and kind of scary, in fact. Yeah. Can we just, can I push a little bit on that? When you sure. say goes through the roof. Well, a, a, an IRR of 16. A, a, a strong increased risk. Yes. Relatively. Yes. But, but I, and I, I do, we don't, have, where is the 16? This what what table the, are you looking at? This is in the month table one? before the COVID yeah. diagnosis. So, you, I mean, that is based on the, the minus three to, to the pre exposure period yeah, from days yeah, yeah. minus three to zero relative to the diagnosis. And there the IRR is 16. Yeah. And so we don't, because they don't give us the, the rates there, they only give us the relative rates. Right. It's hard to know what that means. But if you look in the next table, which is table two, where they talk about, you know, now having excluded those risks, we're talking about rates of 0.01% for the no COVID diagnosis group and 0.03% for the yes group. So the, the rates are not going through the roof, the relative rate. The relative rates, the yes. The relative yes, yes, rate or relative yeah. risk is going. So so I, I just think that's an important point because we're still talking about rare events. Yes. Right. So no, thank you for clarifying that. It's not like everybody who has COVID exactly. has it, a heart attack or a stroke, but that the risk is, is the you're relative just at risk an, is an elevated significantly. Risk. Right. That's right. Yeah. I think you make a good point, Chris, which is maybe we're 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 getting a little too hung up on some of the the specifics here, and that you know, regardless, I mean, if you could just think of these as sensitivity analyses, there is a a large increased risk associated with with COVID, whether it's massively elevated or or fairly strongly elevated. Either way, it's still clearly a, a problem here. I, I suppose the question becomes. Is this really, though, a study of the effect of COVID infection on risk of heart attacks? Because we're only looking at people who were tested, right? And so you've got a lot of people who probably got COVID never got tested mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Most. They, they, it was either mild or just figured what's the point of, or, or asymptomatic, but also people who are symptomatic, but just figured there's no point to getting tested because what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. And, and so you're, the you're really, yeah, you're really talking about a, a subset of COVID here. And it's not random misclassification either because there's a, there's a distinct bias because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's deliberately selecting for the ones who are most symptomatic with COVID. Yeah. Those are the ones who are going to be picked up as opposed to people who are asymptomatic who will never be picked up. Right. Or or, or people who were in the hospital already for some other reason, like we were talking about. So it was right. either people who were under surveillance because they were coming into the hospital environment or they were more severely ill and so were, were getting tested. So that could introduce a certain degree of misclassification mm-hmm. or reverse mm-hmm. causality, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, you know, if you, were to, if you were to be able to do population surveillance and find everybody who had COVID and not just those who got tested or got sick enough to get tested. And you might find there was there, the effect size is not nearly as large. But if you're specifically interested in the question of severe COVID, you know, then I think it's it's a different question. And I, I just think that matters in terms of how you think about this results, because I, what I don't think is you could take this and say the message is, you know, if you get COVID, Go take an aspirin. You are going to get. You're <laughs> going to have a, a dramatically increased risk. Maybe true, but it also may be that we really wait, need to wait and see what the progression of the disease is like first. That's right, mm-hmm. Jess. What, what about you? What else stood out for you? I think one of the challenges I had in, I guess I had two core questions. One of them was the like a presentation question. It almost seemed as if the authors had themselves an internal debate about the value of the buffer period and the value of this day mm. zero. And so instead of concluding, this is the way we should present it, and maybe we'll put the other analysis in a supplement, they put it all into a single paper, and it makes it difficult to digest. As much as there's there's a lot of richness here, it makes it hard as the reader to try to sort through 
what were the really key points? And I feel like that's a little bit of learning that I have taken away from reading this article that maybe it would have been helpful if the authors kind of selected themselves one approach, put the second approach in a supplement and said, this is kind of the, the approach that we're going with or we think is best, but present them both, but maybe not side by side. I, I, it's an interesting point. And I wonder, did you get the sense in reading this, how many of these analytic decisions that they made were made before they saw the analysis mm-hmm. or how many were made after and after I, you know, they realized that yeah and I, that's not a that's not a criticism of the decisions that they made so much as a it would be helpful to know what was decided a priori based on you know they had this hypothesis that this was you know a a versus a a was going to lead to b versus they looked at the data and this is what made the most sense and i i i don't have a problem with with we looked at the data and this is what made the most sense, but it, it does in my mind make it, you know, more plausible that part of that is just hypothesizing after the results are known. You know, you're just influenced by what you see. And, you know, again, I don't, that doesn't to me invalidate their findings in any way. I just want to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I had the, I had the same reaction. I was, I was thinking, you know, that this whole debate about the buffer period and the pre-exposure, the, the, you know, the, what, what do they call it? The pre-exposure period and the width of that and the day zero in or out, all of that struck me as like, sort of like, you know, if you, if one were to map that whole thing out a priori, you'd have to be a genius. <laughs> right. So I was like, they couldn't have, like how likely is it they've figured that all out in advance versus they ran the models and then they realized like, boy, this is, there's a lot of heart attacks on day zero. <laughs> you know, how right. do we account for that? Right. That seems right. awfully soon. Let's like, you know, rethink what we, what we're actually doing here. But so. what was cool about the two study designs is that case, the, the self-controlled case series allowed them to see that in a way that they did not see in the cohort design that yeah. they, you know, they weren't seeing that kind of exact day because you know, they were doing a deep dive into a much smaller number of individuals. And so I thought that was cool. That was kind of, I, I liked the, the two study designs from the same data set because it gave them, and the fact that they kind of were coming to mostly the same conclusion was interesting, but it allowed them to see that day zero issue once they could see the actual dates and then... I totally yeah, agree. I, I liked the self-controlled case series design. It's a design where you're using yourself as a control. But I'm, I I struggle to understand the the control period prior to yeah. the, the COVID, the idea that... that if you had a if you had a heart attack, you then may be more likely to develop COVID. I would think because partly because you're you're hospitalized, partly because presumably you just got a, you're in a weakened state. Mm-hmm. So using that pre period didn't totally make sense. But then I, I could see a similar argument for the post period as well. So I you know it just it, it wasn't totally clear to me that the assumptions are completely met. Not that I you know think they're totally violated, but it, it, it for me it was helpful that they had two different mm-hmm. methods looking at the same thing. I. I'm not convinced that the the match cohort study doesn't also suffer from some of the same design problems. So, you know, maybe it's a, a situation where you're really just replicating the same things. But, you know, it, I, I like the design, but I, I'm not sure I completely bought all the assumptions. I, I I I felt the same. I thought this was this was an interesting study, and and I it occurred to me as I was reading this that this would be had you know had I still be teaching 702. This would be a terrific paper Se- for 702. 702 is what? The, the basically critical reading and writing yep. in public health. It's yep. a great course that you and I have both taught. You developed the course, Matt. Don and Tom have taught it. The whole generation of us have taken over that course and loved the structure, which is basically going through studies and kind of pulling it apart, like doing a deep dive review. And, and this is a really neat one because not only do you have all the stuff about the shifting time within the case control study, but you have the cohort. So it's like putting those two together and and seeing how different epidemiologic designs play in you know answering things. the same question in the same paper is is really lovely you know what a what a neat paper as a pedagogical tool exactly i think it would be a brilliant paper actually to teach with because you have the same question and the same data mm-hmm. set and it shows how you can look at it different ways and different strengths and weaknesses for each design i was struck in part too by the self controlled case series the content, you know, the idea that it controls for these time invariant factors. And I was wondering Clever, isn't it? if, yes, and I was wondering though, if because of COVID there were more time varying factors mm-hmm. that we should have thought about. The authors didn't comment on that, but that was my question. Were there particularly concerning time varying individuals con- changing their behaviors during COVID, particularly during the first seven months of the pandemic, that would be associated potentially with? heart attack that may be, you know, for example, and oh. maybe with COVID, like, like certain, like certain employment 
choices. I, and that's what I wondered about. And I, as I was reading it, and I was looking for the authors to comment in a, on in that. In other words, you're saying a person gets COVID mm-hmm. and therefore they change their behavior in post, you know, after the, the diagnosis in ways that would relate to one's risk of a heart attack? Right. Or because of the pandemic, people are changing their the risks of heart attack in different ways, whether they're not working anymore or they're working from home or whatever they're doing. And that relates their, to their risk of COVID. It, and, right. I think that's interesting, actually. But, but it, it would relate to the, I mean, in this case, it's because the, the event is COVID and right. then we're looking at heart attack. Mm-hmm. Before and after, but they were—it's the—it's the choice of that control period, like we were talking it makes about, all where the the, right? And so they had the like some of the control period was before COVID, and some of the control period was after. Yeah, and the assumption was that that was a kind of a static period. Well, so what, right. my point is though, the period right. after the COVID diagnosis, right. I would assume, and this is a total assumption, that many people would change their behaviors right. in ways that would reduce their risk for. Mm-hmm. Heart attack, which which would therefore suggest that any effects they found are underestimates. Mm-hmm. Potentially, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, and I'm thinking that, of course, there will be many people for whom post-COVID diagnosis risk could go up because, of course, things could happen like you lose your job, things like that, that are very stressful events. So maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it. But for some people, I would think that the risk would go, your risk for heart attack would go down after a COVID diagnosis because you're just, you know, staying at home and right. not really doing anything. Right. Although maybe you're yeah. maybe you're suddenly exercising and you're causing a heart attack. I don't know. Okay, last last point on this one, Chris. You had a you had a pet peeve about the figure. You want to tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, the 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 windows of exposure that they provide in their figure one, where they have minus twenty eight days and plus twenty eight days. They're they're not equally wide. They, they represent <laughs> 28 days before a COVID diagnosis and 28 days after a COVID diagnosis. And one is twice figure. as big as the other one. And one is bigger than the other, which did not, I didn't even notice until Chris pointed out, and now it's really bothering me. Yeah, it's like misleading <laughs> figures example. Yep. So um, that would be another teaching point. It's like, we can do better than that. So the, the, the point I didn't like, or this is just my, one of my general pet peeves, they say, to the best of our knowledge... Our study involving 87,000 plus patients with COVID-19 is the largest study done on the association. Blah, I'm blah, not blah. a big fan of those. Why not just say our study is one of the biggest? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, then you're covered. You don't have to say to, to the, the best bestest. of our knowledge. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Jess, do you have any pet peeves or is it just Chris and I who... <laughs> Did you notice, of, by the way, that, that uh, one of their authors was um, Patty Farrington, who uh, it, it was the, one of the, the statisticians who developed the safe self-contained uh, self-controlled case series. case series method along with somebody Whitaker, as I recall. I did not, I did not notice that. Yeah, he's a heavy hitter on Very the cool. SCCS model. Very cool. All right, so let's move on to our second segment where we were going to talk about Influenza's unprecedented low profile during the COVID-19 pandemic leaves experts wondering what this flu season has in store. That was a title of an article in JAMA News by Rita Rubin. Chris, of course, is going to be talking about lotteries in Ohio. Lotteries in Ohio to read a different paper. increase COVID. And this Missed one, the, the memo there. The, the, there's no, there's no, there's no lead into this, right? So it's, it's, it's. I mean, basically, we know the story, which is that during the COVID pandemic. Flu kind of went away, right? But and I, I was gonna, I was gonna use a, a short expletive, like no s blank. Yeah, but, but. <laughs> so then the question becomes, <laughs> you know, so the question then becomes, what is, what should we expect for next year? And so worse, it'll be worse. That's it, what I expect. It will be worse than last year, but will it be worse than prior years? Maybe. Well, that is very helpful, Chris. <laughs> Might be. What if we had a lottery? Would that increase influenza? <laughs> Depends on how much you're, you're, you're giving. Yeah. But I think carrots and sticks, you know? It looks like sticks work better than the carrots. This is my takeaway on this one. I don't know what we're referring to. The lottery. <laughs> the didn't lottery. Work. For, for, for COVID vaccines. COVID vaccines. It, it didn't did not work. work. But we know now that threatening to fire people works pretty well. Uh, apparently <laughs> so. Okay. So here's my... I have two questions about, about the low influenza season. Number one is... And Chris, you may actually have some insight to this, and Jess, you could just give us your general take on this, but you you may know. The flu vaccine is developed based on the (sighs) circulating types from the previous year. Wow, that's right. (laughs) How do you do that if flu is not circulating? Well, so that's my question. I mean, obviously there's there's not none, right? But there's not much at all. How do you how do what so what do they what do they do? 
Or how do you I estimate of the ones that they find? How do you estimate what will be the big ones? What I guess it's going to be harder. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so I guess my, my concern would be it's going to be a worse year. Plus, I would think the chances that they get the vaccine right this year mm. have to be less good. Lower. Right. Probably. And so should be be particularly concerned about this coming flu season, in which case, what do we do about it? Because vaccines may not be the answer. I mean, vaccines will be part of the solution because I would assume that any vaccine is probably going to have some efficacy because they, they it's not total. I mean, well, I, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to go out and pile up all this, the sofa cushions on the sofa and make a fort and hide. I think that's a brilliant idea. Brilliant idea. And I assume that's what all of our <laughs> listeners are going to do. Jess, what are you going to do? Because I can't uh, figure out what Chris is going to do here. I mean, I think the you know the, the the question here is kind of if if there is the general expectation, which seems like it's reasonable that flu season could be worse, how is that mitigated by the fact that people are wearing masks? Mm-hmm. And is the fact that people wear masks now could that imply that we're going to kind of continue wearing masks you know into kind of high risk flu environments going forward that maybe flu doesn't continue to look the way flu has looked in the past maybe the masks become a longer or even shorter term kind of sustained intervention that maybe has some benefit for masks chris looks skeptical and i have to say i don't know what he's going to say but i share the skepticism mm-hmm. i talked to somebody from uh, another country which will remain nameless, except that it's in Scandinavia. Russia? <laughs> and rhymes with Schmenmark. <laughs> but I will keep it completely anonymous. Nope. Uh, but I was speaking to somebody who said, said that for them, things had, had largely kind of gone back to, to normal and that they were not wearing masks in, in office settings. Now, I don't know that that's representative, but, but you know, it's one, one person's experience. And I just think people are... People don't love wearing masks, even those who are supportive of right. it. And I don't see it sticking around in the in the U.S. as I mean, I think people will be more open to wearing a mask now once when they are sick. But I don't think it's going to be a, a general behavior. Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I have a, a, a partially contradictory opinion on this. Ooh. So w- one is that I think we should we should be vaccinating ourselves against as many things as we can so that we don't like you know people don't die of influenza unnecessarily. I think that that's great. But what we are experiencing here is 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 a, is a different phenomenon where we have skipped an influenza season mm-hmm. because people are not being exposed to influenza because they're wearing masks and they're hiding in their basements or behind their their cushion forts. You know, <laughs> so they are not getting the flu, which I means that they are bedroom. not they're not updating their immunological status. Right. And and so one of things we know about influenza is that, you know, when influenza makes a giant genetic leap, that that triggers, often triggers a pandemic, which is catastrophic in terms of mortality, you know, introducing a new genetic variant. Now we're, we're basically seeing on a small scale, the same thing that by skipping years, we're allowing more time to pass for the influenza strains to, to, to evolve into things that our immune systems don't recognize. And so you might well wonder whether that would, the consequence is that when, when, you know, we're sort of back to normal, we get hit by an unusually severe flu season because we've lacked that sort of updating to our immune system. And sorry, just so I understand, where, where are they updating themselves in birds? Uh, well, they're updating it in the people who are who are still allowing transmission to occur. Okay. So for the rest of us, when we take our, off our masks, are we going to get hit harder than we would have on an average flu season because we've sort of stepped away? And is that because the 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 virus is changing more, or is it because we as humans haven't been exposed, so our immunity is waning? I I I I, I don't know that the virus immunity. is changing more. Okay. Okay, I didn't think so. But I think that our 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 immune defenses against the virus that is changing at a constant rate is going to be worse. Yeah, I because agree. Because we have not encountered the flu. I mean, every year we get exposed to the flu and we update our immunity to some degree. Yep. You know, not everybody gets exposed, but but at a population level, we're constantly updating our immune status, right? So you skip flu for three years and then reintroduce flu. And I, I mean, I don't know because we haven't really had this experiment before, but I can imagine that that might lead to worse flu yeah. because more genetic distance has, has elapsed. Yeah. So I wonder... So what I do know is that that like in in the kiddos, that you know last year with all the kids at home and the schools closed and basically we're totally in lockdown, respiratory syncytial virus season was also basically skipped. Mm-hmm. And I've heard from a number of my colleagues, including in the Netherlands, the the group that does RSV research there, that they are in the midst of a huge and really severe RSV yeah, season, too. and this year too yeah. here in the United States. And so this is kind of validation of that that point is that you know we we can defer this, but the longer you wait, maybe 
maybe the worse it's going to be. And so constant exposure to the pathogens has an upside as well as a downside. Okay, so then the the second question is, we know why we had a very, very mild influenza season. It's because we were taking all these precautions for COVID that are also effective against influenza. But we had a ton of COVID. So why were our measures to prevent COVID so much less effective for COVID than they were for influenza? Is it because we have prior experience with with influenza and therefore, you know, a, a reduced exposure, we can potentially fight it off? Or is it something about influenza that is more susceptible to to being impacted by these same measures that we took for COVID? That's a tough question. <laughs> I don't know if I know the answer. Chris and I are looking like, at each other like, who's going to take that one? Uh, I figure whatever we say is going to be mostly wrong here. But, uh, that is why I, I asked the questions. <laughs> I do not I answer know. the questions. I don't know. I mean, my suspicion would be is that, you know, we, we have certain baseline levels of immunity to influenza from vaccination, from a lifetime of vaccination or from our own infections that people we just didn't have to this particular virus. That's right. my that's yeah. my assumption too, but I, mm-hmm. I I just don't know enough about it. But it is, you know, you, it is something people frequently cite is we know why we we had so much less of flu, and I'm not I'm not sure I totally know mm-hmm. why. I mean, I partly mm-hmm. understand why, but COVID, we had a lot despite of COVID. all of these, you know, what are supposed to be effective measures, we mm-hmm. still had a lot of COVID, which means there were a lot of people who were not protected, right. and you know, you would think that flu could also flourish in those environments as well. Mm -hmm. And it didn't seem to. And there's Mm -hmm. also the question of what does a flu season look like while COVID is still around, right? Mm -hmm. So once, you know, people are mingling more and they're wearing masks or they're not wearing masks and the flu resurges, kind of how does that look in people who've had COVID, Mm -hmm. you know, that they could likely have worse outcomes of having influenza infection among people who concurrently have COVID. I mean, that issue of concurrent infection Mm -hmm. or of influenza infection among... It's hard to imagine that it's better for you. It it can't be better, right? It can't be better. And so there is this element of kind of the pandemic predisposes us to more severity in disease just because so many people have had these serious respiratory events. Yeah. Well, I I, I think, you know, a contemporary sort of economic metaphor of like the supply chain disruptions, which we didn't really see happening uh, prospectively, but in hindsight, it's kind of obvious that this was going to happen because it had hit everything. But that, you know, this is really one of the the most interesting parts of, of, of the COVID experiences that we're learning all these things about stuff that we'd sort of taken for granted that were happening in the background. And now suddenly, you know, we've, we've conducted this gigantic planet-wide natural experiment and it's exposing all these other sort of things, these dynamics that are going on all around us with all these other infectious diseases. It's, it's very, very interesting if it wasn't so scary. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Well, we haven't solved the, re- the answer to my question, but I don't think we're going to get to it. So I think that's fair. So let's move on to our last segment, which is our... Which is to say that, that vaccine lotteries don't seem to work. <laughs> uh, exactly. I'm glad we came and to I, that conclusion. I, I think that that was the whole reason we've gathered here. I think the show's over. <laughs> I don't think we have to really do anything else. But let's go into our Amazing and Amusing. And I'm, I'm going to go first on this one and ask if you two heard this story about the this it's a website called Data Colada, which which published a piece. They didn't do this work themselves. This was was done by a group of researchers who wished to remain anonymous, but that discovered evidence of fraud in an influential field experiment about dishonesty. Oh, really? Did you hear, you didn't no, hear about no, this one? No, no, I'm totally... I did hear about this one. I don't remember the details. But it's, yes, it's just yes. a fascinating story. Yeah. So the study, the original study was a study published in 2012 by a group of authors in which they did this, they supposedly did this study in which they worked with an insurance company, I believe it was, or, or, you know, and they wanted to know whether, you know, one of the things you do is when you're getting insurance is you have to report, or car insurance, I should say, is you have to report the mileage on your vehicle and how much you've you know, driven over the year and you self-report that information. And so the the experiment was they when they sent out this form where you have to report this information, they randomly allocated half the people to get a form which required them to sign at the beginning that said, I, you know, agree that everything that I'm putting in here is honest information, or it was at the end. And the study found a, a 
very beneficial effect of having people sign first before <laughs> they filled in the information. But was that fraudulent? Well, so then a couple of years ago, or maybe it was last year, another group, which did, they didn't try to replicate the exact experiment, but they tried to replicate the general idea of this signing first leads to more honesty, and did six, I believe it was six different experiments, and none of them found a benefit. <laughs> so they then, so then, you know, they sort of tried to figure out what was going on, and I don't know the, the total details of the story, but the original, the authors of the original paper eventually published their data, made it available. And when people got a hold of this data, noticed some really interesting, very obvious anomalies. Like, for example, it was supposedly a randomized trial. So when I say there were supposedly benefits to having people sign first, the way they know this is you have people randomly allocated have to report first and have to report at the end. And then they looked at how much mileage they were reporting having driven in the year. And the groups that signed first reported more miles having driven than the group that signed at the end, <laughs> suggesting that the only explanation for the differences is people are lying about how much they actually drove. But the the data had in it, the the way you calculate how much people drove was you take how much they reported this year as their odometer reading and where they were last year. And if you look at the baseline you actually look at the initial variable of how much people had driven the, you know, what their odometer reading was the year before, they were wildly different between these two groups, suggesting hmm. maybe randomization didn't, didn't work, work or something's wrong. So that's, I think, what prompted <sighs> them to publish the, the data. And then they started finding all these other things like the distribution of the variables of miles driven was a perfectly uniform distribution between zero and 50,000 that falls off flat at 50,000, which of course is impossible. This should follow mm -hmm. a normal distribution. There were other weird things like there were different fonts used in the file. <laughs> oh and it appeared that the, the, the you know, one font was where they had you know, manipulated the data. So anyway, it, it's, it's completely unclear. And the authors of this who talked about this, I've heard them talking about a podcast, say it's unclear as to whether the authors committed fraud or it was actually the, because they didn't collect the data themselves supposedly. It could have been that they worked with this company. The company is supposed to get this data and the company never gets the data and says, oh, shoot, we were supposed to get this data. Well, let me just make something up and hand it over to them. So they're, they're not accusing the authors specifically of fraud, but the data is very clearly fraudulent. Tinkered with. Yeah. What, I just, what I thought was so interesting about it was twofold. One was the, the number of ways in which this became evident, you know, this sort of issue of like different font sizes or, or something I would never even think to look for. But the second thing is the fact that the people who discovered this gave this information to a second group of people to publish because the authors of the first study are fairly, are pretty prominent, very, I should say very prominent researchers mm. and feared retribution for potentially exposing this, which I, you know, mm. doesn't strike me as unique to this particular field. I think there are, you know, incentives aligned against the discoveries of, of these kinds of things and publishing them and a backlash to people who do in some cases such that, you know, those who are early in their career feel like, you know, that's, this is, this is tricky stuff to, to actually expose people. So well, that just, is amazing, but not at all amusing. <laughs> exactly. So I just, I that's thought it so was depressing. A, a fascinating you know, story. You, this is my husband's favorite topic. So he's an experimental physicist and spends a lot of his time thinking about fraud in physics really? research and his whole dissertation, like his, the whole topic of to his him. research was generated because he was trying to replicate these findings published in a really high impact journal and they could not do it. They could not do it. They could not do it. And so he took some of the, the papers that this guy had written and noticed that the figures across all different experiments were basically the same shape mm -hmm. and kind of were maybe like tinkered a little bit or were the same figure just superimposed with a different scale. And so he spent like a year looking at figures and then it, it, the whole story kind of devolved where oh, his ad advisor kind of contacted this researcher who was like on this really, you know, up and up trajectory and the whole thing was fraudulent. Uh. And, and there's a lot of that in certain elements in like the laboratory sciences where you are doing experimental work 
and either you don't do it for some reason, like you're supposed to be replicating it a hundred times and you just don't do it. And so figures are doctored. And my husband spends a huge amount of time when he's reviewing papers, looking at the figures and looking at the data and trying to see how someone else is, was this figure just plucked from somewhere else? And it's interesting because in our type of research, it is much more difficult to uncover. In In some ways, it's harder to uncover fraud, right? Because you can ask people for the raw data sets, but it's, I don't know, you have to, you know, this is data from individuals and you have to be really keen and looking for patterns and looking for, you know, kind of thinking about, and you know, what you're looking at. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Although I think there are, I've, I've seems to me there's a group of people who are getting very good at the skills mm-hmm. needed to be able to detect this. And I think yeah. that is, is a good thing um, yeah. right, if there right. are more people around and, and, you know, I've definitely seen these people be treated poorly mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. described as you know data thugs and things like that right, for right. for for doing this work so it's it's thankless work in a lot of ways and it's risky so yeah well anyway chris what do you got well i i found another sort of interesting lotteries a paper about ohio lotteries <laughs> um and the nice thing about ohio is that it's filled with lakes so let me ask you both as a, a pair of epidemiologists here if i told you that there were two lakes and that one lake had mostly redfish in it and the other lake had mostly gray fish in it, right? And said, go fish. Mm-hmm. How many fish would you need to fish before you were convinced that you were in a red lake versus a green, a, a, a gray lake, a gray fish lake? 27. 27. Okay, that's a I'd say three. Three. <laughs> so, okay, that's good, actually, because it, it's as a segue in, in, into this phenomenon of, of cognitive error where people leap to conclusions based on very sparse data. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I know, Jess, you would, you would catch 23 fish as well <laughs> with that peculiar level of precision. But a lot of fish is the right answer rather than a few fish. But, you know, in, we know that in our in our world, there are people who, who who fish and leap to conclusions after one fish and say, oh, the first fish you pick up, that's the that's the, that's the the dominant fish in the lake. And, and so we call those jumpers, people who jump to conclusions, which is the whole point of this Scientific American article, which I thought was really interesting because they, they go on to say that, that individuals who have this habit of jumping to conclusions easily have all sorts of other cognitive errors that they... That they uh-huh. Express, you know, for example, if you align the jumping phenotype with other beliefs, you find that that the the early jumpers tend to be conspiracy theorist fans mm. and or flat earthers or feel like you know they they give us several several examples in this paper like believing that the Apollo eleven landings were a hoax, you know, all, weren't they? Uh, <laughs> apparently, it was true. My answer is um, that one fish. Apparently, it was true, and and I thought this was this was really interesting, and also how quickly people come to sort of logical errors. Like here, here is another one of the of the, the the mistakes that people make. Like if you said a baseball bat and a ball cost a dollar ten together, and then you said that the bat cost one dollar more than the ball, most people would say that ten. it was it was a dollar. The bat cost a dollar, and the ball cost ten cents. But that's not right because that a means dollar. the ball was free. Right. So it's a dollar five, mm-hmm. and 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 you know that's, so that's that's the true answer. And yet the, 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 the jumping phenotype is also associated with a pseudo-certainty that defies that logical error, mm-hmm. that, that they, you know, they sort of more, dig more down in on More confidence in the wrong answer. Yeah. And yep. we, we've talked about this in the we past, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is this interesting phenomenon described in psychology where there's an inverse relationship between how much you know and how much you think you know. Yep. Right. <laughs> which, yeah. which we see everywhere, mm-hmm. right? This sort of pseudo-certainty about the world that, a you know, people who are genuine experts in whatever it is, physics, for example, tend to be super skeptical and careful and cautious about their data, like your husband, because they know how hard it is to know. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who know nothing and think it's all very easy are very certain that they understand how things work and that, that you know, in fact, they are the most likely to be wrong, but the most likely to believe they are right and be like, like dig in on it. Well, the colloquial term is mansplaining. I was going to ask <laughs> if there's a, a gender effect. Yeah, I, I bet there is. I'm, I'm sure yeah. I'm probably guilty of that too. You should have, you should ask my wife. My wife. So anyway, I what, thought this what, was interesting. What, wait, what? What? So how many? What's the answer? How many fish? Uh, it doesn't matter. Oh. The, the point is how. Like this is an example of how we 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 jump to conclusions based on sparse data. I thought that was uh, going to be an answer to how many fish I needed. Yeah, yeah. I I I have to say, I'm impressed how you made that transition from Ohio to, lakes? to the lakes. Cause I, I didn't, I, I don't didn't, even didn't know, know what you were doing there. There's at least one big lake. I did. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, Minnesota would have been. It's scary. Halloween. Better, but it's, it's eerie. 
Mm. Oh, gosh. That is the perfect oh, way to kind of move on. Jess, what do you got? I have one. And so I just, I have a transition from the fish story into my article. So I have, I wonder if your jumping phenotype changes over your life or if it's kind of like your one phenotype in your whole life, you're just making these snap to like, I feel like I have become more of a jumper as a parent. Like when you have less time, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to just make these decisions and then it affects the way you think about a lot of things, even if you shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I don't know. I wonder if it changes throughout your life. So that's something, here's a transition. Acquired wisdom, we hope. (laughs) Or that, you know, when you're a parent, you you have to just triage. There's certain times in your life where you have to triage information and triage, like Twitter, triage things that you do. But then maybe at other times in your life, you can pick up those things again and maybe pick up depth <laughs> again. Anyway, my, my article is, is of interest to me as a parent in particular. This was a study that was published in the summer looking at the effect of something called visual noise on children's reading skills and reading comprehension among children who have reading disorders okay. or dyslexia. And so many of us are familiar with the idea that white noise, you know, kind of white noise is this like background humming humming noise that for some people is soothing or for some people helps them concentrate. You know, this idea of of kind of sensory soothing or some sort of sensory background noise if people are easily disturbed to kind of avoid the disturbance. Mm -hmm. And so what these authors did is they used something called, which I had never heard of, called visual noise, where they created pixelated screens at different intensities and took a group of children, some who had different sorts of learning disabilities, especially related to reading, and some who did not. And they gave them words to read on screens with different pixelations Mm -hmm. behind it. And their hypothesis was that the children who had reading disabilities were going to be able to more easily see the words once they were highly pixelated. And that actually ended up being the case, which was fascinating. Why would that hypothesis be? So their hypothesis, and this study group had also done research on white noise, And the hypothesis was that it kind of provided some sort of sensory backdrop to these children. That was that there was some kind of extrasensory processing going on as they were trying to read. And that processing interfered with them being able to read and comprehend the words. And so if they provided kind of visual background noise, the kids would be able to read the words better. And they were. Hmm. And they described the results almost like you put on glasses, like you had a child with dyslexia and you put on glasses and they could read the words. And this was fascinating to me. That's very cool. Yes. And, you know, very interesting because also it spoke to potentially the power of devices where Mm. if you have a child who's dyslexic or has some other sort of reading difficulty, if they can read on a screen that's personalized to them with a certain amount of visual noise. noise, that that could really help them in a very powerful way. Anyway, Obviously, these findings need to be duplicated. This was a small study, and they were looking at kind of 11 and 12-year-olds. But I think this was back in Sweden, like our our earlier conversation. But the Swedes are doing such interesting stuff. They are. But anyway, I thought that was kind of amazing and not so much amusing, but very, very interesting. Oh, it's totally cool. The the mind is a fascinating thing. Yeah. Well, that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or (laughs) any other episode, what? What did I do? Nothing. Oh. (laughs) That... Was the end of our program? <laughs> this, is, this is the end of our program. <laughs> right if you now. have any other questions, you should direct them to Leslie Zalalian and we'll give her a home address. <laughs> she likes visitors on a Friday night. Okay, this is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this, just call Nick and give him whatever you want. You can, you can tell him whatever you Cross want. Cross his palm with silver. I believe you can find him at PopHealthyX on Twitter, or you can find me at ProfMattFox, or Don at dthea one or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. As Chris says, we want to thank Leslie Talali, an Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and being our lyricist. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>